Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Talk easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, on our final episode of the year, we present our annual holiday special. We've been doing these since the podcast began back in 2016, but if you're new here, let me explain. In 2021, we released 52 episodes featuring dozens and dozens of people. To close out our year, I've invited a handful of those people to sit and reflect on the past 12 months. George Saunders, Julie Delpy, Glenn Turman, Winnie Bianima, Nick Offerman, and many, many others. To everyone, I presented a few central questions. What piece of art spoke to you in 2021? Did you have a moment where life felt like life again? A dinner, a concert, a wedding? And then lastly, what do you hope the next year looks and feels like? These are questions answered by many you're about to hear from, but I'd also love to hear your answers. Whether you want to share them with us on Instagram or Twitter at TalkEasyPod or over email at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com, I'm curious to hear your responses. There's also one more question, which is, how are you spending your holidays? I think most of us, if you're lucky, are going to spend this time with our family, our friends, our loved ones. In doing so, many of you listening, perhaps even right now, are going home or 
already at home for the holidays. And it's this idea of home that made us want to make this episode. And not just make it, but partner with an organization offering refuge and resources to homeless, abused, and trafficked youth across America. That organization is called Covenant House. And through the remainder of this year, 100% of the proceeds from our mugs and vinyl records will go to their programs. If you don't have one already, our mugs come in cream and navy, and our vinyl record is with the iconic, the brilliant Fran Leibowitz. If you'd like to support the great work Covenant House is doing, visit talkeasypod.com slash shop. That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. Like I said, 100% of the proceeds will go towards the work they do beyond immediate shelter. They provide the long-term support that is needed to heal the hundreds of kids that come through their doors each day. This is a modest contribution, but nevertheless, any purchase you make will be helping them do the work we so greatly need them to do, especially in 2022 as we continue living through this pandemic. If you need the URL, take a look at your phone. We put it in the description of this episode. Whether you're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, you'll see we've presented the link for easy access. Also in that description, you'll notice how each guest has been given a specific time code. In case you ever get lost or just want to remember who you're hearing from at any given moment. So our first of three phone calls is with Julie Delpy. But to get this started, I'm going to hand it over to one of my favorite entertainers. I would say her name, but she says it so much better than I ever could. So thank you for being here. And I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Is it on? Is it on, honey? Is this thing recording? What's up, YouTube land, Twitter land, Instagram land, Snapchat, Grinder, Scruff, BGC, Jack, Facebook, Periscope, and last but not least, every single one of my Christian Mingle and the lands all across the land. This is your girl, T.S. Madison, honey, and I'm coming to you loud, live, and always and forever in color from the Talk Easy Podcast Christmas Celebration Conversation. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you the piece that spoke to me in 2021. Huh. It was none other than the T.S. Madison experience on TV. My show was groundbreaking and it was a think piece for all of the people out there in America who have this perception about trans women, especially trans women of color. I hope that I did my service to the girls and redirected the thoughts on trans women, honey. I hope that I made them feel that they had a human experience while watching the T.S. Madison experience. I will say that this year in 2021 was the first year in 15 years that I have put up a Christmas tree in my house. And I don't know what came over me, but for some reason I felt the need to experience the joys of Christmas and laughter and holiday fun again. 
I think the feeling had left me when my aunt passed away in 2012 and also when my best friend died in 2017. But baby, this has been a really good year for me. I was able to give back to my community, black and trans. And I also made lots of money this year. Lots of money, honey. And I just felt the spirit of giving, the spirit of love, laughter, and life came back into me. And I decided to put a Christmas tree up. And I am in the holiday spirit again. Maybe this might be the year 2022. I find my one true love. Huh. Who's even looking? Anyway, everybody, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And get ready because the new year is coming. Hi, Yarabo Shata. Get all of those resolutions in because the time to start is now. I love you. Be blessed. This is T.S. Madison. Hi, it's Jake Tapper from CNN. And the only moment where life felt like life again for me this year was when Dave Matthews and the Dave Matthews Band came to Meriwether Post Pavilion. And I saw that show with a couple friends of mine. Because that's the only time uh, that I was in a crowd. Uh, it was outdoors, um, but people were not masked, uh, generally speaking, and it felt normal-ish. It's not like it wasn't uh, present, but there were moments there where I kind of just lost myself in the music and enjoyed uh, the company of humanity and uh, things seemed back to normal fleetingly. Hi, my name is Vicky Krebs. So I remember during the lockdown, because we were doing a movie where a concert was playing, and because that was at a time where there were no concerts, so we kind of made it up for the movie. And what started out as a scene where we would stand and listen to the, to the music became almost like a party. I mean, it was not a party because it didn't have, you know, alcohol and it wasn't long enough, but for one hour at least, Everyone was dancing to the music and I had forgotten how good it feels to be surrounded by people in one room and everyone moves to the music and the music is actually live and someone is playing it. That was the most magical moment for me in 2021. And for Christmas I decided to stay here, to stay in the sun because I'm working in Arizona and I decided to have my kids come over and now we're just going to stay here me and my two kids and have Christmas in the sun which will be very exciting for us because we never had that that was actor Vicky Creeps CNN host Jake Tapper and the one and only T.S. Madison next up we call writer, director, actor Julie Delpy Julie Delpy. Hi. How are you doing? I'm okay. 
a little is that a crazy. Is that a real answer? Yeah, I'm a little bit in a state, uh, how do you call it, manic? Like I'm writing 20 pages an hour and being very productive, but kind of in an obsessive way. You know, I'm being obsessive about things. I'm writing like about 10 screenplay at once. So, and I'm not sure which one I'm going to end up finishing up, but I'm writing one that's being ordered, one that I decided to write a month ago. So am I the first real person you've talked to in the last couple of weeks? Well, no, I speak to my son, but outside of my son, you really, yeah, there's not very many people I speak to. <laughs> I'm honored. I speak to this once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> For the listener, what what are you holding right there? So I was holding uh, a little, uh, some creature named Puffy Puff Puff. My son and I's favorite teddy bear that we do a lot of things with you know we tell stories and stuff she's actually kind of like a sort of Marilyn Monroe because we make up film noir scenarios with a koala named Panatone who's mafia and you know all sorts of things like that okay so it's me your son and puffy puff puff, puff. puff. I'm in good company I, I asked you how you're doing because when I posed that question to you the first time we talked earlier in the fall you said I have to be honest with you I can't be emotionally involved in my art anymore. Here's a quote. I think I'm going to stop. I can't take being emotionally involved in something like writing my guts out in a movie. I'm good at what I do as a filmmaker. I should just take a script, make a great film, and not worry about anything anymore. Truth is, I did the extreme opposite. I'm writing something that's even more personal than anything I've written before. So it doesn't mean that I might not take a job for hire either. You know, like, I think I can do both. I love this because I don't know if you remember, but at the end of our conversation, I kind of was begging you to maybe keep going. Yes, I was. Uh, you know, it's it's a hard business because you some people will will be greatly respectful of the fact that you put your guts out and some people will just shit on it. You know, it's funny because everyone talks about mental illness and how hard it is for people in the sports, people in this and that. No one's talking about creators being criticized and you know the minute you do a critic on a film that's a very personal film you do affect deeply the filmmaker or the writer or the painter or the whatever it is the art piece is or if you want to consider film art piece or not that's the reality so it makes you want to just not do it again not all of them some are real great critics and i think i can read the difference when i read a critic even that doesn't necessarily love my work but understands the process and is respectful. And then you have the the people that are just doing it who knows why, you know, because they couldn't get hired mm -hmm. to do something else or something. I had a critic really trash me on one movie, which affected me greatly. And I could tell, he, I'm not even sure he sat all the way through. You know, it used to be, there used to be a real culture of critics in France, for example, with all those new wave guys who were critics, right? But they were doing, they were doing it out of love. On the subject of something we liked this year. What film, book, TV show, exhibit, what spoke to you in 2021? What What's something that you fell in love with? I'm in the process of watching all the foreign films, right? Which is always the greatest pleasure for me of voting at the Oscars is the foreign film. And I'm finally part of the foreign film committee. It was about time they offered me that to do, to do that because it's like my favorite thing is watching foreign films. But also a few American films that I love, like Come On, Come On, which I think is a sort of a little perfect gem, you know, of its own kind. And I think it's really brilliant. I really loved uh, the Paolo Sorrentino film. 
you know, hand, the hand of God. And I love Compartment Six, a Finnish film about someone in Russia, a Finnish woman in Russia. I mean, I mean, I mean a beautiful film to really see. Um, you know, there's so many films I loved. Uh, I just watched uh, the Mexican entry, which is really heartbreaking. The, the 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 Australian entry, which is actually a film about Afghanistan, which is also wonderful. Um, so many great films that I I'd say, you know, it's funny. It's not an exhibition. It's it's what I love the most. It's a movie. It's a bunch of movies. No, but that's really interesting what you said because two movies are exactly what I had started a couple of months ago writing, they're in the same concept, which is come on, come on, and and the hand of God. There's something to it that is speaking to me deeply because it talks about children, education, what comes next for a young men in a way. And it talks to me about my son. And those two films are really affecting me. And there's also, I saw a film, I saw again, uh, Aida Kovadis, Kovadis Aida, which is uh, made me cry and scream and lose my mind again. You've never seen that film? I haven't. No, it was, uh, it was uh, nominated at the Academy Award last year. It's a film about Serbian war, about the, the Balkan war. It's really, really, really shocking and heartbreaking and makes you very angry at the same time. And, you know, I'm watching all those films that are affecting me emotionally, like tremendously affecting me emotionally. It's interesting because I don't think ever in my life I've been affected by film than I am now. You know, it's probably, my film is probably never going to happen and it's not going to be half as good as those guys' film. No, 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 I'm not putting myself down, but I know, I know, and I'm sure critics will take a big giant turd on my face, but, you know, <laughs> are you leaving your closet? <laughs> I'm le I'm leaving my podcast. I'm walking out. <laughs> You're walking out of your own podcast. No, but seriously, you know, I, I I know that, but I don't I don't care. I'm writing it, and you know, if if I'm dead next week, you know, at least someone will have an idea of what you know, whatever. <laughs> it's hard to engage with with so much positivity. <laughs> well, it's the holiday season. You know, I do hate Christmas, and I hate this time of the year. First of all. It's my birthday soon. I hate my birthday. I'm born the darkest day of the year, and it's shit. I also hate my birthday. It's my least favorite day every year. I hate it. I wish I could skip it. And it's always been like that. It's not just because I'm, I'm whatever, I'm getting older. I don't even care. But the problem is I hate it. And, and it's near Christmas, and Christmas people get drunk. They throw up in the yard. And I mean, my memory of Christmas is like my uncle who would drink way too much and throw up in my parents' little tiny garden. So that's that's my memory of Christmas. And people were so drunk, at least in France. And they were a little bit of the presence, but then people would... I remember an uncle that arrived drunk, um, you know, dressed as Santa. That was the end for all of us of our belief. Because <laughs> you were like a little kid and you were like... That's not Santa. That's, that doesn't look like Santa. <laughs> Santa is not peeing in the, on the carpet. <laughs> in the Delpy household... Are you the Santa peeing on the carpet? <laughs> <laughs> I focus on food. I'm very excited because I'm going to Europe for Christmas. And usually my dad will make all sorts of stuff that I really like, like sea urchin in the shell. It's not very like greasy, crazy food. We don't like that stuff so much. But I mean, we like it, but not, you know, it's not like Thanksgiving here where people feel sick uh, after they eat. You know, we, we try to eat like... No, but it's true. I felt sick again. I mean, every year I feel sick. I don't know. I always eat too much. I don't know why. Because, I, it's, because it's an all-day event. I know. And I felt, yeah, I didn't feel good. 
when you came on this fall, you said that you're making meals for all your friends and your kids and your partner all the time. This made me think, how chaotic is your like cooking schedule around Christmas time? No, it's it's not more at Christmas than any other day. I'm cooking all the time, really complex meal and to feed my family every day. And I, I steam vegetables while I saute others and things that are in the oven. And, you know, I'm making tamales for six months to freeze. And then I'm making, you know, I'm very conflicted with cooking and food. So you're going back and forth between writing eight or nine or 10 scripts and cooking a bunch of meals. Let me ask you, how many therapists do you have? <laughs> Only one. You. <laughs> That's it. You're my uh, only therapist. I, you know, I have to say something. We haven't checked in in three months. I'm not in therapy, believe it or not. I was for a short time last year. I like to go to therapy for specific stuff. I don't like to do like overall therapy for my life because it's way too complicated. I just like to focus on one event that's bothering me and I just try to work it out. Me too. I'm the same way. It needs to be a, a concentrated problem, and, and we'll see how long it takes to fix it. When you go home, what does that mean to go back? Does it mean anything? Oh, yeah. And, and I have to say, the pandemic, the hardest part for me was not being able to go home, because even though I live here in Los Angeles, to not be able to be near my father and, and in Paris, I still consider it my home. And eventually, and my son too, weirdly enough, my son who was born in Paris, but has been completely raised in the U.S., consider France is home. It was hard to not be home. And I can only imagine when people are either don't have a home or have to leave their home because of, you know, wars or economical or like whatever it is, you know, it's, a tr it's tragic. In the past year, so many of us haven't been able to go back. We haven't seen people. We don't know where this new variant is going. God willing, it's not lethal. But in this past year, was there a moment where life felt like life again to you? Exactly when I landed in Paris. <laughs> I think a little bit before, the minute that I knew I had my ticket and I was not stuck somewhere. You know, there's something about being stuck somewhere that drives me insane. I mean, it happened in September 11, 2001. It, it was like that because no one could travel for a while. It was like really crazy. Everyone was paranoid, freaking out. It was like that for me. Like for a while, I could not travel. And this was the same with COVID. And that was really, really unpleasant. And the minute I had my ticket and I knew I could leave, I actually started to enjoying LA again. People were vaccinated. We were not stuck anymore. I mean, it, it, we were stuck for how many, what, a year? Stuck in this world. It was really, really, really unpleasant. I really, I mean, everyone hated it, but, you know, and some people lost their loved ones, so I can't complain, you know, but still. Now that we're somewhat unstuck, and I say that very cautiously, there was this whole conversation last year and some of this year about on the other side of this, people will have more gratitude, maybe more kindness towards each other. Do you believe any of that? I don't know. I think other problems are arising and, and has set people into a world of, you know, living from home, streaming, not going to the movies, not going out. You know, a lot of people have given up and for good in the social world. And I think that's not healthy because 
how can you empathize with other people if an algorithm is telling you what to watch? How can you open your horizon when we are being so limited? I don't know what a, what the next step will be. I'm writing pamphlet after pamphlet about the future world that I will never publish or send anywhere, but I'm writing them every day, you know, pages and pages and pages, like a crazy person. But, you know, I'm really scared of the world that's coming this um You know, I'm happy to see my kid listening to vinyl and playing guitar and not video games, for example. I'm happy to see my kid telling me not to watch TV or stream some stuff, you know, like sitting on the couch, eating and falling asleep. It gives me hope that he won't be a victim of this world. But I am completely stuck in the, you know, not getting out, not seeing people and just like uh, drooling in front of the TV. What's in this pamphlet and, and, and what are these pamphlets? <laughs> <laughs> just writing shit. I'm like writing shit like a crazy person. You know, sometimes I think, and sometimes I speak out loud also. Like, you remember that film Naked? That That's me right now. No wonder you said yes right away to this invitation. You just wanted someone... I need to speak to someone. Also, no, but seriously, I speak to my son. My husband was here until a week ago, so I was speaking to him. But my husband speaks a lot, so I end up not speaking that much. You know, he talks a lot. That seems impossible. <laughs> no, he talks more than me. <laughs> like about 20 times more than me. Before we go, let's try to end on a hopeful note, if we can. You mentioned the film Come On, Come On. I really enjoyed it. And one of the questions posed in that movie to children... I'd like to pose to you. I realize, you know, you're not a child. What do you hope for in 2022? You know, truly what I hope for 2022, I hope to make this film I'm writing, which is a very, very small film, but very the most personal thing I've written. I hope to make it and quick and fast and shoot it in my house and fucking do it like I did my first film. And also we're planning to move to Europe for a year because my son is really, really animated and i hope also for can we actually go into like kind of turn the tracks of this world into a better direction because right now there are people you know shooting themselves in space and not really just i hope you know some people will take the future of our world in their hands you know almost like those children and come on come on and actually do something that's not destructive and violent and we'll take it somewhere else and maybe they need our help it's not just in their hands they need the help of all of us you know how old is your son he's going to turn 13 okay so long as your 13 year old son is listening to vinyl records and so long as my sister who just turned 20 is sending me old Todd Rundgren songs. I think we have a chance. I think <laughs> it's all about music, really. A chance is all we got, and it's better than nothing. Yeah, exactly. Let's hope that's the direction we're heading. As always, lovely talking to you. Julie Delpy, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, it's Tulin Oji Odotola. The artwork that really spoke to me, it's kind of two. One was Jennifer Packer's show at the Whitney. Seeing her work, there's something about the experience of being in that room, seeing what she can do with paint, what she can do with placement and people in a way that felt very 
kind and very like messy in the way that humanity is messy, but still so exquisite and expert and just such a confidence and a confidence in knowing that perfection is impossible and the thing that makes us beautiful, the elements that make us memorable are in fact the things that can't be capitalized on or subsumed and incorporated into something that is about worth or value. It's beyond that. It's, I guess for lack of a better word, is priceless. Um, and how connections very similar in that effect for me was um, a film called Drive My Car. And it's a long film, but it, it was a beautiful experience because I saw it in a theater and it was the pacing, it was the editing, it was the way that language was used so beautifully, how different people from different experiences and, and different ways of communicating linguistically came together to create an artwork that still was palpable and really leaned into how to communicate feeling and to show, again, connection doesn't have to be what we expect or what we know. It can be the unknown. It can be someone who speaks or translates something in a completely different way. And the moment I felt the most alive this year would have to be spending this past summer on a trip with my cousin, Benjamin, and getting to know him, getting to know ourselves and traveling together. It was really magical. And we shared some beautiful moments and I got to learn about patience. I got to learn about forgiving myself in order to forgive others and to not be as judgmental about the world, which really opened me up to a lot of beauty. And so I'm really grateful for that. Hello. My name is Anna Sale. I host the podcast Death, Sex, and Money, and I am a former Talk Easy guest and a Talk Easy fan. I really, let's see, what do I want to tell you about? I will tell anyone who listens about um, Reservation Dogs if they haven't watched it yet, and in particular, the episode uh, where they go out hunting or the episode that follows the local res police officer around his day's work. Um, those two episodes in particular, I just absolutely loved. I loved the pacing. I loved the way that it made me realize how rarely we see rural communities um, on screen um, respectfully and with humor. And uh, whether I have felt like my life is life again, um, I don't know, that's come and gone a few times this year. Uh, I will say I had one moment um, earlier this fall where my older child started kindergarten and my other child started preschool, both wearing masks full time, but both out of the house, in-person learning and it was startling to me to realize that um, for me, not just from COVID, uh, but also from early parenthood, I had not ever, in a long, long time at least, I had not been alone in my home on a weekday morning um, just with quiet uh, to start my work day. 
and it was glorious. So that was a moment that stands out in 2021. I wish you all a great holiday season and um, all the best in the new year. Stay safe and healthy and talk soon. Bye. Hi, this is Glenn Turman. I'm very excited about a new book that has just come out by Keith Ryan Cotwright and is called Black Cowboys of Rodeo. The unsung heroes from Harlem to Hollywood and the American West. And one of the things that's got me so excited about this book is the fact that I'm in it. I've got a chapter dedicated to Glenn Turman. It's just come out and it's very well written and it's got so many of my heroes mentioned in it and my friends mentioned in it. You guys go out and get it. Black Cowboys of Rodeo by Keith Ryan Cartwright. The forward is by Danny Glover. I think the biggest moment of normalcy for me was registered when uh, this Thanksgiving, the family came through in shifts, <laughs> like uh, the good old days where everyone came by and grabbed a plate. We were able to be together. You know, the kids were running around and uh, the, the wife had prepared such a scrumptious meal for everyone, you know, complaining all the while about how much work it was. And of course, indeed, it was a lot of work, but she's always been able to handle it. That was a, a wonderful time. This Thanksgiving was really great because we were once again able to enjoy it with family. Hopefully, that's the way we'll spend Christmas. That was legendary actor Glenn Turman, host of Death, Sex, and Money, Anna Sale, and artist Toyin Oji Odotola. Before our next call, I want to remind everyone why we're doing this episode in the first place. The good people at Covenant House are providing refuge and resources to homeless youth across the country. They do this work year-round, but as you can imagine, they're working overtime during the holiday season as temperatures decline and shelters grow scarce. To support, we are selling our Talk Easy mugs. They come in cream and navy. We're also selling our vinyl record with my favorite curmudgeon, Fran Leibowitz. 100% of the proceeds of your purchase go to Covenant House through December 31st. You can make your purchase and in turn your donation at talkeasypod.com shop. That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. If you need the link, you can find it on your phone right now in the description of this episode. Once again, the link is talkeasypod.com slash shop. Thank you in advance for supporting us, but more importantly, the good people at Covenant House. Next up, why don't we call one of my favorite people and uh, one of my favorite working writers today. George Saunders. Here we go. Hello. Hello. Hey, Sam. Is this uh, George Saunders? It is. How are you doing? Sorry about that. I thought you were calling here. I was just kind of waiting around. You were sitting there waiting for my call, and I, I disappointed. No, no. I disappointed by not reading my email close enough. I disappointed myself, as often is the case. Well, you know, I think we can get through it together. I think we did. How are you spending your holidays? 
our two daughters both live in the L.A. area, so we're just going to pack up from here and go down there about the 23rd and then spend a couple of days with, with each of them and then get an Airbnb. So we're kind of doing is the first time we've ever, gosh, yeah, since we've been married, I think, the first time we've ever done Christmas away from home. And we don't have a tree up, and we're just going to kind of improv a little L.A. Christmas. And, you know, for me, that's the best because I guess I started really enjoying Christmas as an adult when we had our babies, you know, and then I was working full time and it was a chance to kind of like have three days in a row off and just huddle, you know, so I think we we have that kind of memory in our bones a little bit. So it's, I think we're all looking forward to it. What are you doing? Well, I'm in LA. I'm, I'm going to crash the Saunders festivities. <laughs> just like Scrooge, just bring the biggest turkey on the cart and then you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> now, in terms of a holiday gift, this uh, Substack newsletter of yours is a pretty good one. Why don't you tell people about what you're doing here? Yeah, it's I started this newsletter on Substack, and it's called Story Club. And I'm just kind of extending what we talked about last time, this, this Russian book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, where I just was taking these short stories apart and trying to understand how they worked. Story Club is me writing about stories and writing life and uh, kind of writing tips and exercises. And it's so much fun. I mean, we've got some like tens of thousands of people on there and it's the weirdest thing. Like the comments section is so positive and supportive. And so I'm kind of addicted to it. I, I, I think it, of it as kind of like a, an extension of my teaching life. So I've got the same kind of feeling like, oh, hey, what can, I, what can we talk about next week? And so it's been really a shot in the arm. Around like the thesis of this newsletter, you wrote something I like. You said, the essential work involves an offering and a playful exploratory spirit on the teacher's part and an openness to receive on the students. And I, you know, I learned this teaching at Syracuse where we have these great students. There's no way that any one person knows anything about writing that's simply transferable. My whole writing life, I learned how to work with my mind and my early drafts and revise them in a particular flavor. But all that is so personal, you know? So I think that the right stance for the teacher is to say, okay, I know a few things that mostly pertain to me, but let me put them in front of you, dear student, and you are not obliged to take them. But if you feel like it, you could sort of expose yourself to them and see if they knock anything loose, you know, see if they strike any chords. So in that way, it's not like I'm going to teach you this or I have the right way and now I'll give it to you. I think it's more like curating an experience where you take a talented person who always has a lot of momentum of her own anyway, you know, a lot of desire, a lot of momentum. And then you just subtly put a little obstacle in front of her. And in surmounting that obstacle, she's always taking on the thing that's obstructing her most. So I think offering is the right word and helping. Like, just okay, so I'm not sure I can help you, but uh, tell me what's going on. I'll try. You know, that, that's sort of the spirit of the thing. The spirit also seems to be around this paragraph you had when we talked last time. I don't know if you remember, but we spoke shortly after the Capitol riot on January 6th. Right. And you said, it occurred to me that if we had the idea that stories weren't important, this moment right now is proof that they are. Because when a shitty story is propagated and gets into a human mind, pretty soon the human body starts doing very stupid stuff. It's really tragic to see people who, had they been encoded with more reliable, good-hearted information, they wouldn't have been there doing that stuff. Yeah. In the last year since we have spoken. What kind of stories do you think this country is starting to tell each other about ourselves? Do you think we're getting 
any better at storytelling? Well, I don't know about that. I, I think we're getting panicked. I think people are finally starting to realize that this isn't really a tenable thing. It's kind of like if you, you know, you had a, a married couple in a car and they're fighting and all of a sudden they see they're in a blizzard and they go off the road. The fighting has a consequence. I'm picking up the first inklings of a tone that says, maybe this has gone far enough. You know, maybe we have to find some way to get this dragon back in the box of partisanship, you know, and of, of auto snark and all that. So I don't know. I mean, that, that's the only hopeful thing I can I can see is that people are starting to feel the strain of the incivility. That's the first motion of change is when people are like, this is unbearable. I can't do this anymore. And then suddenly they start looking at new solutions. I'll tell you the interesting thing. One of the reasons I'm doing the Substack is I wrote that Russian book, you know, the times were crazy. It was the election and the pandemic and all this stuff. And every day I went up there, I gave myself a little license to enjoy myself, you know, like to read Chekhov, just forget everything else. Just let's look at these three people in this fictional world. And I always came down happier, a little more cheerful. Now you could say I was putting my head in the sand, but I would say I was putting my head in the sand and then coming up peppier, you know? <laughs> so I think that's one of the things about the story club I'm feeling already is people are kind of going there for a little bit of good old fashioned positive community that isn't snarky, you know, that and where you could take a chance and say something and no one's going to jump down your throat in a bad time like this. You have to find sustenance where you can, because whatever the world's going to require of you, it takes a certain amount of happiness to, to do it right. You know, I do believe your work and a few pieces of art this year are doing this thing you're talking about where the ego and the conceptual mind, which you always talk about, they're very strong, but maybe in the act of engaging with a piece of art, whether it's Chekhov or George Saunders, it recedes. And in that moment, some mild transformation happens. And I'm curious, was there a piece of art for you in 2021 that did that? I actually had a really good reading year. I think maybe when we were talking, I was reading Don Quixote and I finally got through that and that was a riot. And then uh, I also read Maggie Nelson on freedom, which was really beautiful. And then followed that with Dana Spiotto's novel Wayward. So, so both those are so powerful. They did what we're talking about. They just, I thought, wow, to write these things, these two women had to get out of their own way and really go for the truth, you know? And so I felt that transferred to me. Same with uh, Joshua Ferris, um, that book of Calling for Charlie Barnes. Have you read that? I haven't read it. Really daring. And he takes on, you know, sort of the uh, American middle class hustler, you know, and he does, does it with so much love. It's so unexpectedly compassionate towards this guy that often fiction and TV kind of just kicks and, you know, moves on from. And then uh, I also discovered the work of Amani Perry. She's got a new book called South to America that I'm reading now. And it's just the tonal originality of that thing is really an inspiration. So I'll just, I'll just dip in and kind of just be reminded about how if you take the trouble to really work with your prose, you can get it sounding like nobody else's and thereby saying new things. How was your writing this year? Well, I think it was pretty good. I, I, I finished a new book of stories back uh, beginning of November. I think partly because of that Russian book, I just went on a tear. Like I wrote four new stories between then and now, which I never do. I'm like a one story or two story a year person. But we were up there in the Catskills and deep winter, you know, and so I just wrote like crazy. And this has been true my whole life, not just during the pandemic. If I'm feeling self-doubting, which I constantly am, or if I'm feeling like I'm in love with life and I wish I could live bigger, which I always am, sitting down and writing at this point in my life is really the, the medicine. You know, I just, I just love the feeling of saying, 
I can't control anything else. I'm so confused by the world. It's not going the way I want it to. But in this one little realm, you know, I can exercise complete control. I, I know you just turned 63. What are you self-doubting about at this age? Oh, I mean, everything. I mean, maybe it's just it's just who I am. But I, you know, I think, oh, yeah, sure, you wrote some books, but you're probably done now. Or, you know, you wrote some books. I wonder if you can do better. Uh, and also just personally, you know, like I kind of know what I want to do and how I want to be, you know, which is like really nice and uh, present and, you know, all that. But then in real life, it's just I disappoint myself. So and I don't really see that as a bad trait. Like for me to to be self-satisfied is the end of everything, you know. So I don't mind feeling a little bit of uh, desire or self-criticism bubbling up. I really like that feeling because then I just work harder. You know? The way you're describing this want to be kind and decent so many people associate your work and I think your interviews with creating this empathy within them and in turn putting it back out into the world. And I and I do wonder, when you're not kind, how bad does it feel for you? Because it's something, when people start to think of you as someone, <laughs> as, when some people start to think of you as someone who's kind and you're not, I have to imagine that it's tough to balance. Yeah, for sure. I try to think of myself as someone who advocates for kindness. I'm not, you know, <laughs> like I believe in it. I'm all for it. So that gets you off the hook a little bit because I, you know, I'm, I'm such a cranky person sometimes. and I can't even pretend to be like Gandhi or something. The more you talk, like the more you're public, the more I'm public, this question of kindness comes up, you give a pithy answer and then it starts to work on you. Then you're like, oh God, I'm in my hotel room feeling grouchy and I'm that guy who just talked about kindness. So that's not very fun. You know, to say to somebody, be kind is pretty obnoxious and facile. You know, yeah, okay, sure, I'll, I'll just be kind. But what's interesting to me is to start poking at that a little bit and go, okay, so I was grouchy today. Why was it? And what could I have done about it at speed? Or what could I be doing every day so that doesn't happen so often? Uh, and then you get into, you know, all kinds of things like, you know, presence of mind. And, um, and I guess the deepest thing is like when you are grouchy, what does that actually mean? Like, is there a way that, you could, that part of you could step outside of that temporary grouchy feeling and undo it? Maybe, maybe not, you know, um, but suddenly now you're talking about something deeper than being kind. You're talking about your your relation to your own phenomenon that's endlessly deep. So I think when I talk up, I just feel like, yeah, well, of course you did. I mean, you're just a guy who talks about kindness. So you, you know, you're like with that thing when I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I like that you're advocating for kindness. Yeah, I think that's a good description. I'm a fan of it. Like if you're, if I'm out on the road and I'm talking about kindness every day, I don't even know what the fuck I'm talking. I'm just making it up. You know, <laughs> I operated on the idea that if you could get a big public life, you should take it. And I sort of defended it by saying, well, I'm a writer. I always complain that people don't pay attention to writers. If I get a chance to do something public, I'll do it. You're not thinking about the ratio. What, you know, what ratio makes you feel healthier? So the Substack thing is for me a perfect solution because it's private and that I'm doing it here in my house and I'm revising this stuff I'm typing as sort of a an element of control but it's also got this lovely community element I'm kind of thinking I'm going to slide that in where this all this traveling used to be and just stay home a bunch more you and I haven't really spoken since we sat down back in January maybe early February I can't remember now have you had a moment where life felt like life again 
we did. We when we first got back here to California, we just got vaccinated, and it was just that kind of window where it was like, oh, it's over. And we went out to the same place twice in a in a week or two. Here's what I felt: is that in that moment, all of the built up tension of the previous year kind of went away. You know, probably the higher level way of thinking of this is: this is life. I mean, let's just imagine that this goes on forever. It's still life. You know, when people were in World War II, when people were in the Civil War, it was life. For my own self, I'm trying to say, well, let's not make this binary of life and not life. This is life. It's a slightly messed up life relative to the one we used to have, but certainly there are still pleasures here and there's still work to be done. And the time is still ticking by. In a weird way, I'm trying to get less hopeful about this thing being over and more resigned to trying to live it up while it's still on, I guess. Or just accepting the fact that we have to live with it. Yeah. Which I think most of us want to avoid. I think that's a harder thing to reconcile. You're right. Well, the other thing I've been trying to do is just like do the math of how many minutes a day am I actually living in a different way? I think I'm trying to avoid uh, making too much of it in my mind. You know, oh, we're still in a pandemic. (laughs) But in fact, yesterday, for example, I did absolutely nothing different. Everything was exactly the same. So I think that's another long-term coping strategy is just to say, well, yeah, today I had to wear a mask for seven minutes. Okay, I can do that. You and your wife have been married since 1987. Is that right? That is right. May 23rd. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the pandemic, it's been tough. It's been tough for relationships. It's tested a lot of people, a lot of breakups. A lot of people have had pandemic babies. <laughs> and then broken up. And well, yeah, no, and then break up. Maybe they get back together, but we don't know. The, the story is, it's unfinished. But I want to know, how the hell do you make something last that long and make it as lovely as it seems. I mean, honestly, I'm paraphrasing that Olivia Harrison, but we just don't break up. <laughs> we love each other and we have a lot of fun, but also we just, it's not really something we're going to do. And so it's amazing how that takes the pressure off a little bit. You know, you can have a bad week, you can have a disagreement, you can have a, a close period and a less close period. It doesn't really matter because that person is your partner. And then what happens in that space is you, I don't know, it just builds up into a real steadiness that says, this person has definitely seen me in every kind of weather and she's still here. So that makes you feel pretty loved. But we also joke, we said, let's try not to talk about our marriage in public because you don't want to be that, you know, that couple. And then, but yeah, it's been nice. I promise I won't forward her this talk easy tape. (laughs) My last question for you, like I said, you turned 63 about a week ago. You're going to go see your kids over the holidays as you know, we like to think of this show as a time capsule. What do you hope 2022 looks and, and feels like? I just hope that we put this pandemic behind us somehow. That I really just, there's so many other things to worry about behind that, that I hope we can get our act together and start, you know, behaving like grownups and just wear masks and get vaccines, do the work. Personally, I it's the same every year. You know, I, I want to try to um, make progress in certain areas. Like writing would be one and meditation would be another. And, and then also I want to uh, really try to um, visiting with family and stuff and friends, which has kind of been rough the last couple of years. But it's pretty much the same. I mean, I kind of I've always known what I wanted to do with my life. The big thing is, how do I eliminate the like daily inefficiencies and the kind of confusion of motives, you know, where either I'm working too hard and not taking care of personal stuff or I'm forgetting to work or my work is not focused, but it's, it's always been kind of the same thing. So I just, I just want to do better, you know, even at 63, there's room to grow. What's funny is it becomes urgent for one thing. 
And also it narrows. You, you sort of see where you need to grow. A lot of the boxes are checked off or, you know, you kind of have figured out that you're probably not going to be in the NBA, you know, whatever. But then the stuff that remains is huge. It's kind of exciting, actually, as you get older, the playing field narrows a little bit, you know, and there's two or three real difficult things to get over. You know, like if you said, okay, I want to really be an incredibly loving person, you know, life goes, yeah, well, okay, how's that working out? You know, and you see, okay, no, that's the only thing I want to do. Forget everything else. I'm going to quit writing. I'm not even going to drive anymore. I'm just going to sit at home and try to be a more loving person. And you see what a huge job that is. You know, it's the work of many lifetimes. So it's actually kind of exhilarating to get older, especially because, you know, like I still feel really energetic and really engaged and stuff. You're saying, does it get narrower because of mortality concerns? No, well, not really. No, I think it's just that you burn through the stupid shit. So, I don't know, in my 40s, 30s, I, I might have imagined some different life or something. But now, like, I'm, I've convinced myself that I'm living the way I am for a very good reason. You know, writing is something I just love. I can't imagine doing anything else. And then some kind of, you know, spiritual development is in front of me. Continuing to be a father and husband, that's it, and the son that's really about it. You know, travel, I don't really care anymore. Any of the other stuff, it kind of falls away. So I guess it's just, maybe it's just like having lived within your own mind and body long enough, you get some clarity on what really matters and what you're meant to do, I guess. I don't know. I say that and then next year I'll run away with the circus or something. So who knows? (laughs) I know you hate being followed around by quotes, but I'm going to present a quote to you as we leave. It's a good one, by the way. You said, I have a very limited gift, and the essence of that gift, as I've come to understand it, is that I can sometimes produce a moment or two of increased empathy in a reader, and I'm grateful for that gift, and understand it as fundamentally political. Stay behind that. I know you're still trying to figure a whole bunch out. I think, by the way, it's very reassuring to hear you at 63 still figuring it out just like everyone else listening to this. But uh, I thank you for the gift day after day. Uh, I think I think when you stop trying to do that, that's when life gets kind of scary. You know, that's when you start phoning stuff in. And so God saves from that. But, yeah, thanks for reminding me of that quote. That's a good that's a good aspiration. Anyway, thank you for thinking of me, Tim, and, uh, and good luck in the new year and, and all that you do. George Saunders, always, and thank you for the time. I'll see you on the other side. Sounds good. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Nick Offerman. Among the things that spoke to me this year is a an older recording by the great Petra Hayden from 2006 or 2007 or so, entitled Petra Hayden Sings The Who Sell Out. She takes the record by The Who, called The Who Sell Out, and she records every sound of the record using her voice. So obviously she does the vocals, but then she does all the instruments as well and emulates the, uh, the satirical advertisement interludes uh, that The Who initially did. And it's just a hypnotic and genius piece of work. She's uh, a very special talent, and I highly recommend all of her works. Another piece of writing that really spoke to me is a book by my friend Patrick Laurie. In the UK, the book is called Native, and in the United States, the book is called Galloway. 
full disclosure, I wrote an introduction for the book in the United States, but it hardly needed a goose from a slow-talking actor. It's a beautiful account of him and his wife uh, making a go at a small farming operation, mainly raising native Galloway rigget cattle on a piece of land in the southwest of Scotland where generations of his family have tried their hand at farming before him. It's a brutal and often thankless life that nonetheless is uh, irresistible and full of passion and uh, hard-won rewards. He's one of the brains and hearts on the side of good, looking to perpetuate our species' ability to live on this planet rather than uh, looking to maximize his profits by growing some monoculture or other on his land. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. This is Joy McMillan. A moment in 2021 where life felt like life again. And also, I was inspired by art. Um, Happened up in New York. We were there for the Zola premiere. And our friend Jeremy surprised us with a Sprinter van and (laughs) took us around New York City. And one of the stops was the Gagosian and um, the director and curator, Antoine, took us on an amazing tour of the current exhibit. And one of the ones that stuck out to me was, I believe it was called A Song for Frankie. It was a selection of some of Frankie Knuckles' albums. And it was quite fascinating because some of these were like these really one-of-a-kind, not too many of them exist in the world. And as the DJ was playing them, he was also making a digital recording of the vinyl to be archived, which I thought was such a smart way to preserve the past. It was amazing to walk around and see people still doing art and still being inspired by the world, even though we are facing this pandemic that lasted a lot longer than I think a lot of us thought it would. It was a great day, and New York felt alive again, and I was happy to be there. I hope you all have a happy, happy new year, and I'll see you in 2022. Thanks. Bye. Hi, I'm Janixa Bravo. I'm a writer, I'm a director. What piece of art spoke to me this year? The first film I saw in a theater this year was on um, April 30th. I remember it because I got into a car accident May 1st. The uh, piece was, it was by Moses Sumney. I, I knew it was a screening of a film that he had worked on, that he had directed, and and I was late. I'm, I'm always late. And I had texted him and then I, I thought, oh, it's so rude to be texting someone that you're going to be late to their thing, but you also want them to know that you're definitely coming. So then at some point I stopped texting because I didn't want him to be spending any energy on me. Anyways, I get there and it's playing. You know, we're minutes into the piece. It's called Black Alicia. And so now I'm standing for about 20 minutes in the wings. And then I finally take a step forward into the theater, a bit into the light. And when I look to the left, the room is pretty 
full. You know, everybody's masked. At this point, I'm double vaxxed and I think everyone in the space is double vaxxed, right? And I had this kind of paralysis where I was afraid to walk into the room for a few reasons. One, I'm standing there for long enough that I feel like if I walk in, people are going to think that I just got there. And then there isn't the room to explain that I've actually been there and that I've just been standing. Exactly the thing I was dreading happens, which is I get there and then you know, a handful of people that I know that I'm sitting near asking if I just got there and there, I can't talk over the movie, so I don't. Anyways, it was my first time in a theater since I think, uh, I don't know, March of the year before. So it's now the last day of April. I really miss that, that dark. I miss that quiet. I miss looking at someone else's breath pattern and, uh, you know, some distant kind of laugh or hearing someone's stomach. And the work was stunning. I mean, Moses's voice is godly, right? You know, he, he is uh, extraterrestrial. The other things I was going to cite was being in London and going to the Tate Modern and I hadn't been to a museum in over a year and going to see this play that uh, my pal Emma Corn was in and and I hadn't seen a play in over a year. And those three experiences are in harmony or synonymous because I, I miss being around strangers. I long for strangers. I was hungry for strangers. And it was so wild and fun and just, it was something I hadn't done in a really long time. And it was the first time in a bit that I just thought like, I kind of want to like let go some because I've been so fucking wound up. My like anus has been like so coiled and so far up my body that it's like basically like touching my fucking intestines, you know, which might actually be how your body works. Anyways, this isn't stand up. I felt like I was breathing and I felt like I was really looking through my eyes. That was writer and director Janix Bravo, editor Joy McMillan, actor and author Nick Offerman. Our last guest is Winnie Bianima. She's the executive director of UNAIDS, where she's spearheading the efforts to end AIDS by 2030. In the past, she served in the parliament of her home country of Uganda before becoming the executive director of Oxfam. She's also a long-standing champion and activist for social justice and gender equality. As we were putting this holiday special together, I have to be honest, she was the first person I really wanted to hear from. I have a feeling you'll understand why in a second. So, why don't we call her up? Winnie Bianima. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm so happy to see you again. How are you? Well, it's been almost a year since we last did this. A lot has happened in the world. I, I'm curious because we haven't spoken. What have you been up to this year? I have a feeling it's been a much more interesting year for you than me. Uh, I don't know. But certainly this year has been a big one for us here at UNAIDS where I work. Uh, because this was the 40th year since the first case of HIV AIDS was identified actually in the United States. And it's 25 years since our joint program of the United Nations was created. So we're we were marking 40 years of the disease. We haven't ended it. We have no cure, we have no vaccine, but we've put almost three quarters of the people 
who live with HIV on treatment and are living good lives. That's like 30 million people, but we still have 10 million others to put on treatment. Now, you mentioned HIV AIDS, and I want to stick with this because the international nature of this pandemic, it's something that Americans have had a hard time processing again and again. You recently released a video where, where you spoke on the comparisons between COVID-19 and the AIDS epidemic. Could you speak to that a little bit while we're here? Yes. I had the pleasure to narrate a film together with uh, Prince Harry of the UK, and we were highlighting the parallels. Unless we do the things that we know are right to end a pandemic, whether it's HIV or COVID, we won't end HIV and we won't end COVID. And what are those? One, that you must make the right to health a right for everyone to enjoy. It can't be for some and not for others. A pandemic doesn't choose. It just knocks everyone in the way. So equality, ending inequalities in health is key. But look at the world we are in. There's a vaccine. 70% of people in rich countries are vaccinated. Only about 7 6% are vaccinated in the developing countries. What is that? We will not end the epidemic without vaccinating everybody. So vaccine equity is key. We had the same problem with HIV when the antiretrovirus came. 12 million people in Africa died waiting for the prices to come down. Eventually they did. But still, we have to push and push and push until we have all medicines, all health technologies available to everybody at the same time and for free, that's important. We also raise other issues, but this is the most important right now, the vaccine equity in the world, by not solving it, we are getting new variants. Omicron didn't have to happen. Another variant will come until we vaccinate the whole world. You and your team are on the ground combating this issue. And I'm curious, you said that there are things that we know are the right thing to do. And yet, when you said that, my first thought was, but we don't do them. Yes, we don't do them because we have allowed very rich people and their companies to write the rules for us and keep making super, super, super profits, money they will never spend in a lifetime as people die. So those rules need to change. South Africa and India have put in a proposal that the rules on this monopoly be suspended for a while until the epidemic pandemic is over. And most of the world agree with them, but a handful of countries of leaders whose companies are maximizing profits won't sign on. So we want those countries to join the consensus. Good enough, President Biden has joined that consensus once the rules suspended, but some European countries have resisted and we still are waiting for them to come on board until then no other company can make it without being sued if it copies the technology that's available. So that's one. But there are also other things, ensuring that health systems work for everybody. We know that even 
if the vaccine itself is available, but you have a health system that doesn't treat everyone equally, that there'll be people left out. So we need to have also human rights for everybody and non-discrimination. This issue of inequality, it's something you talked about last time we did this. And you said, inequalities are not natural to us. When we find them when we are young, we question them. But as we get older, the social norms of society start helping us accept them. We don't have to accept inequalities. Now, you are in your 60s, unable to accept inequality. How do you do that? I'm young at heart. Let me put it this way. I am suspicious of status quo and convention. I question all the time. You see, I find it so strange when I'm in the meetings with people from business. And when we start talking, for example, about this vaccine inequity, they always start by telling me that we are all for making sure everybody gets vaccinated. But please, let's not talk about the rules. If the rules work for you, you defend them. If they don't work for you, you challenge them. I happen to be from a very poor country called Uganda. I'm a black woman. I go around this world. I'm a CEO, but many times I'm pushed around like I am illegal, not legit wherever I go. So I am reminded constantly that my race, my country, my gender put me at the bottom, even though actually I have overcome that, I'm at the top. That's what makes me challenge all the time because anyway, I am confronted with inequalities all the time. What's an example of you being pushed around? (laughs) There is a restaurant here. I have made a joke about it. I like it. I like the food. It's very nice food. Every time I went there, they would tell me there's no table. Even when I can see half the restaurant is empty and I would insist and insist, then they'd give me a table right at the back near the toilets. And when I see the restaurant with seats facing the beautiful Lake Geneva, they never allow me to have a view. So I started being very stubborn, but funny. And I would keep at the end of my meal say, excuse me, you said that table was reserved. Nobody's been there the last one hour and a half. And I would laugh. Now, I started to say to them, I think you don't like me because of how I look. So then we started to apologize. So now now I go there. They, They are not racist anymore. But it took a year to get them to accept me because of a stubbornness. But now I can't do that all the time. I tried to hail a taxi in your own city in New York. The guy passes right by me and stops at the next block and picks somebody else. Yeah, I face the same discrimination that people my color face, black people. And uh, when you are also a woman, they look at you, they think you are the cleaning lady. I enter buildings for meetings and they first stop me and interview me and ask for my all my documents and and then uh, maybe with my staff member who is white, who, who is not asked a question. <laughs> I can go on. But this kind of world is not natural. It happened like that because of history. And we as people can choose not to live like that. So I resist. I stand up for myself. 
and uh, I do my job in a way where I'm always asserting equality for, for everyone and for myself. Do those experiences ever harden your heart at all? I have to say sometimes I'm angry and uh, I speak loudly and angrily, but most of the time my attitude is that I must not be distracted from what I've come to do. Don't spend all your life fighting discrimination and uh, racism and it's all around you, but if you pay attention all the time, you'll not get your job done. But yeah, sometimes it does get at me. But I have to remind myself that I have overcome it. I am forced to think about those who are crushed at the bottom, who cannot rise, who are crushed forever. You know, um, every one of us can do something. And I have to say that there is energy and uh, enthusiasm that comes from trying to do something beyond yourself. I'm fortunate to have a job where I'm trying hard to make a difference in people's lives through healthcare. So that gives me energy and there is something that propels me to fight on because there's something that some people will gain from. So equally, every one of us can do something. You can volunteer in your community. There are so many people who need shelter, who need food, who need care, who need someone to talk to them. They might be old and alone. All this improves the quality of life of someone. And you can join a group and all this will bring you energy, and even better health. Because rather than sit there angry at someone who's been racist to me on the street, I channel all my anger and frustration in a job that is about helping other people. So to me, activism brings joy and health and and a good spirit. You know the phrase, um, sometimes the only way out is in? That's it. That's so clever. It's just sometimes you don't want to go back in. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The world is so unjust. And uh, I think the only way to live with hope is to commit to do something to make it more just. This idea of home and, and shelter and refuge is central to what we're doing this year on, on the holiday special. What does home and this time of the year mean to you? And, and how and where do you spend it? Like most people, I want to be with family. Yesterday, I was speaking with one ambassador here who told me, I have to run. I'm going to meet my daughter at the airport. I haven't seen her for a year and a half. So this season for me, I'm conscious of the fact that there are many people who haven't been with their families because of COVID, not being able to travel, not people who've lost jobs and are stuck and uh, have no money. So, so I feel so lucky to be able to, I'm going to take off some time with my son. We'll go in the sun, because uh, for me, a holiday season like this is not the snow one. 
<laughs> it's not snowflakes for me, it's sunshine. So we're going to go to Africa and enjoy some sun, spend time together, read books, see nature. That is what holiday is for me, for me to, to be in a garden, to be in the bush, to be in the sun and family. Since we spoke, have you had a moment where life started to feel like life again? Where you had a some experience that reminded you of life before March of 2020? Oh, yes. I was so lucky. In November, I had been um, invited to the Paris Peace Forum. But after the meeting, I went to an art fair. It's called also known as Africa. And that art fair, so many art dealers, let me say. And so people come there to see contemporary African art, to admire it, to buy it. You find their collectors, you find their curators, journalists, writers, musicians, and beautiful art. And suddenly I felt I'm an art lover. And suddenly I felt the world that I had been in where I could visit all galleries all the time, like attend exhibitions all the time, had come back. This was in Paris in November. And I, I was able to buy two nice pieces of art from Mozambique. That was nice, really nice. It made me feel life was coming back. And do you think it is? Yes, for some, not for others. Because even as I was there and in that art fair with all this beautiful art from all over Africa, in fact, I didn't even have to wear a mask, by the way. This Omicron hadn't come yet. I, I, I remember I said, Shall I, do I have to wear my mask? They said, no, you don't have to as long as you're vaccinated. So it, it really dawned on me that, my goodness, these people are vaccinated. I mean, this space with hundreds of people, it's closed, no one's wearing a mask because it's free from the virus. And yet back home in Africa, less than 7% of the people have been vaccinated. I, I felt the inequality deeply, that everything was normal in the rich North and I was enjoying what I always enjoy but I was conscious in my head because it's just coming from Congo, actually. I was so aware that everywhere else in the developing world, they're not back yet. Yeah. So <laughs> on the one hand, good. On the other hand, pain at the inequality. Your whole life, it seems like you have to hold those two worlds every day. For some, you're so perceptive. It's true. I live... Uh, two realities and I have to hold them together all the time. I cannot escape from one. I have this phone. It is the constant reminder. Again, because technology has brought us together, every few minutes I'm getting a message from my village in Barara telling me that uh, I can't pay fees for my child or my dad is in the hospital and I can't pay the bill. Can you help me? I am constantly aware of the challenges people face where I come from, uh, while I'm also living in abundance myself and those around me. So 
there are two realities I, I have to deal with all the time and uh, find meaning know that um, at any one time I'm doing the right thing for myself, my family and for my community. In these two realities that you have, as you move into 2022, what do you hope to do in both of them? Well, I have a big, big agenda ahead. Are you pulling out a notebook for the agenda? No, I'm not, gonna, I'm not looking at a notebook. As I go forward in, in 2022, I'll keep focused on two things. One is to keep reminding both people in government and people in business that they have the keys to end two pandemics, COVID and HIV, that they just need to be leaders and do the right thing. And that right thing will save lives, save our economies, save jobs, create new jobs, and move us forward. But they have to focus on those inequalities that are stopping us from ending a terrible disease. They have to focus on that. So I will be doing more advocacy. I'll be mobilizing more. I'll be raising the voice for HIV because it's almost forgotten because everyone's panicking about COVID. But the truth is that HIV last year killed 690,000 people, one and a half million people when you're infected. So it's going on. So I'd have to keep reminding the world of that. I will also have to keep raising funds to get that work done and reminding business and politicians that you can solve this. Be leaders. Do the right thing. We can't be beholden to a few companies making super profits. They've made their money several times over already. You know what we've calculated? That Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca are making $1,000 every second of profit. So count one, two, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. By the end of my sentence, they've got 10,000 in the account. What's that? Do they really need any more money? Why can't they pass the technology on and we must produce these vaccines for everyone? So that's part of what I'm going to be doing. Uh, stronger advocacy for equity, for both in, in both HIV and COVID and uh, pushing for leadership to make those decisions. Many people don't have a whole lot of hope right now. You've rattled off a handful of issues things I know you will do. Do you believe people will do the right thing? Yes, they will have to. But it's taking too long and people are dying and not dying just from COVID because now people in listening to your radio are no longer hearing of COVID deaths. But people are suffering. People have lost jobs and continue to lose jobs. People are dying of other diseases that are not being taken care of in the developing countries because the systems are overwhelmed. Kids are not in school in many countries and those who are in school are not where they should be. They've lost a year, they've lost two years. 
violence against women and girls has spiked. So these things continue to happen as we wait for leaders to step up. But they will step up. And uh, I'm sad to think that this is going to happen only after so much suffering and pain. But I can see that the way it's rocking the markets and the economies, the way politicians are finding it harder and harder to look credible in the rich countries before their own electorate, because when they've declared victory, then Omicron comes. When they have boosted the vaccine, another variant will emerge from another poor country that hasn't got vaccines. And then they will have to explain to their people why once again they are locking them down. All this is going to force them ultimately to find the final solution to this, vaccinate everybody. But why is it taking them so long to see? They are going to lose elections and that's all they care about, these politicians. They will lose the elections because they keep making a promise and the virus hits again. <laughs> so it defeats logic. They are going to do the right thing, but it's coming late. And anyway, we must keep pushing for the right decisions. And so we'll keep advocating. We'll also keep supporting the work in the developing countries of helping the health systems to cope and for people to have their right to, to get services. So that's the work we do. Well, until those leaders do the right thing, we're not naming any names here, but I thank you for doing the right thing in their place. And more importantly, I thank you for looking beyond yourself for as long as you have and as fearlessly as you have and maybe, just maybe, inspiring some of us to do the same. Sam, thank you. You're so kind. But thank you so much for your platform, for using it to serve humanity. You do an amazing job to bring these issues on your platform and share with a whole audience that listens to you. Thank you, too. It is a modest offering. And uh, anytime you want to come, please, I, I would love to speak with you. Thank you. I'll be back. Until then, Winnie Bianima, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Happy holidays. And that's our show. Before I go through the credits, a few words. I just keep thinking about what Winnie said at the end there. There is energy and enthusiasm that comes from trying to do something beyond yourself. And maybe that's what I most hope for in the year to come. That we can collectively do something beyond ourselves. 
for others, for the people around us, the people whose names we'll never know, whose holiday dinners we'll never attend. As COVID cases continue to surge in America and abroad, it's been incredibly difficult, at least for me, to find or, or feel hope. It's like that feeling after your heart has been broken, and you can't imagine falling in love again. It seems too daunting, too painful. But then, in time, you do. Or at the very least, you try to. Because the alternative to not love or to not try to do something beyond yourself is so bleak that there really wouldn't be any point in continuing onward. Noam Chomsky said we continue onward by embracing the bicycle theory. If you keep riding the bike, you won't fall off. I like that, especially from him at age 93. But I go back to Winnie here. She said, The world is so unjust, and I think the only way to live with hope is to commit to do something to make it more just. And that's what we're going to do here with this show. Every Sunday, every week, even as we remain in repair. Those are the words I'm going to hold and bring into 2022. On the show and off. For now, I want to give a special thanks to all those who made today's episode possible. T.S. Madison, Jake Tapper, Vicky Creeps, Julie Delpy, Toyin O.G. Odatola, Anna Sale, Glenn Turman, George Saunders, Nick Offerman, Joy McMillan, Janixa Bravo, and of course, Winnie Bianima. To hear our conversations with each of those people from 2021, visit talkeasypod.com. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. Once again, if you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. We'll be donating 100% of the proceeds to the good people at Covenant House. You can learn more about our fundraiser and their great work on our website. I want to thank our team for making this episode and really this year possible. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and Clarice Guevara. It was mixed by Ben Tolliday. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our engineer is Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringas. I'd also like to thank Delizia, Clea Benson, and David Cameron. Of course, our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. As always, thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I hope you and yours are remaining safe. I hope you're eating too much food. I hope you and your annoying cousin have only fought about politics once so far. I hope you've fallen asleep watching a movie on the couch. I hope you're okay. We'll be back with new episodes come January. Until then, stay safe and so long.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.